episode 24 of Long Hair Do Care. This is a podcast about topics relating to queer intersectional ecofeminism. I'm your host, Georgie Corkery. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Also happy to go by they, them, theirs. For this episode, my March 2022 episode, the topic is queer birding and birding queer. Before I get this episode started, I want to say that I do use a little bit of academic jargon in this, and I do my best to explain it as I go. However, I want you to give me some slack. I am new to the world of academia, and I am also new to being a podcaster. Despite this being my 26th episode, I still feel like I'm learning as I go. Also, I have definitely spliced in, including this piece that I'm speaking right now, this part, I've spliced in a few different spots where I just wanted to explain things in a different way. So my voice might sound a little different. It might go from this very serious tone of me being intense or uh, probably more monotone to me being a little bit more excited or funny. I don't know. But I hope you enjoy it. And if you do have any questions about it, as always, feel free to reach out to me on my Instagram, which is at longhairdocarepodcast. All right. I really hope you enjoy it, and I hope you don't mind the splicing that I did. Here we go. I have no special guest today. This is just going to be me doing another one of my fabulous monologues, and the topic is actually what I've been doing my research on for the past year in grad school at Utah State University. So to answer my own question, what are you most excited to talk about today, Georgie? as I would ask my guests if I had a guest on, but again, it's just me. I'm most excited to share with you my genuine joy for birding and how birding is queer, I argue, and also to talk a little bit about queer ecology and what it means to be queer in an ecological sense and to queer a thing, and in this case, to queer birding. But before I jump into the topic... As you know, I need to talk about a few things, including the cats I've seen, the wildlife I've seen, and conscious content consumption that I want to share with you. First off, the cats that I've interacted with last month were Captain Hammy, which is my friend Nick's cat. He's very cute. I've described him many times, so I will spare you. And Milo, who is Ronan's cat. Ronan was my guest on episode 20, A Positive Transition. Shout out to Ronan. You're great. It's been a while since I've seen you, and I miss you, and I'm in love with your cat. And then my friend Ricky, who is an old friend of mine, they run the mobile moon co-op. They're absolutely fantastic. Maybe if you're a listener, you know who that is, but Ricky has a cat named Milpa, and Milpa means three sisters. Three sisters being corn, beans, and squash, for those of you who are farmers or gardeners. The wildlife I've seen uh, in the past month were basically lots of lizards, because I was in Canyonlands, actually, with Ronan. Shout out to Ronan and my dear friends Jess, Leanna, and Jesse. So shout out to all of you. We also saw a number of red-tailed hawks, and then I saw a bunch of deer. But I didn't record anything else for the month. I'm a little sad. I was hoping I would see more. My wildlife hasn't been that tip-top, despite me going to Canyonlands. But I haven't been getting out much beyond that. So wish me luck for next month. For conscious content consumption, I want to share one thing super briefly and then another one more in depth. But the first one is the film Booksmart. Super funny. It has two female characters. They're like in their last year of high school. My friends Danielle and Kevin, they introduced the movie to me. I went over to their house, saw it. It was really good and I think it did have a fair representation of women and the way that women or anybody, no matter what your gender, should treat each other. So super funny movie. If you need a movie to cheer you up, you should watch Booksmart and you can thank Danielle and Kevin for the recommendation. The second conscious content consumption item that I would like to share with you is a musician, a queer rock and roll tubador musician, which I actually didn't know what tubador meant before this and I looked it up and um, I don't really know what it means, but I know that Their music is awesome, and it's Talia Keys. Pronouns she, they. Talia Keys is described as a born leader and dynamic rocker by Live for Live Music. 
and I absolutely agree with Live for Live music. Here's a description I did pull straight from Talia Keys' website, which is taliakeys.com. Talia is an activist musician who has laid a loyal local foundation in Salt Lake City clubs for over a decade and later made their name on national tours and jam festivals from coast to coast. Key's vintage ethos, as well as her trademark fire and brimstone stage presence, are an amalgamy of her journey, identity, influences. They bring a new twist to the rock and roll scene by singing songs of struggle and ultimately triumph. Her music addresses the distressing state of our fractured society with her trademark unrepentant attitude and style. Part of why I like Talia Keys is what they sing about, and like the quote I just read to you, a lot of it is about fractured society and her queer identity definitely comes into play with a lot of the music. I think another one of the reasons why I really like Talia Keys is because I've seen them perform live, and when you see a band perform live that is singing lyrics that you relate to, it's just a really great feeling. So if you're in Salt Lake, or in Utah, or around Salt Lake, or just get an opportunity to see Talia Keys and The Love play, that's the band name, you should absolutely check it out. Or at very least, look up some of their music videos. Speaking of music videos, one of the music videos called Guns Out is an award winner of a number of awards. I was going to list all of them off for you, but I'm just going to tell you that it was one, two, three, four, five different awards and then was nominated for a number of other ones because the video is genuinely really good. There's a bunch of Aspens in the background. The singing's great. The lyrics are great. So look that up. Maybe go see a performance. The newest album that was just released recently is called Lessons, and I urge you to check that out. On their website, on Talia Keys' website, taliakeys.com, something that I found heartwarming was that there were links to different resources. Those four resources are blacklivesmatter.com, equaljusticeincentive.org, marchforourlives.com, and sunrisemovement.org. I assume most of you know what blacklivesmatter.com takes you to, and if you don't know, go check it out. Equal Justice Incentive is an organization that is committed to ending mass incarceration and excessive punishment in the United States, to challenging racial and economic injustice, and to protecting basic human rights for the most vulnerable people in American society. The next one that you might not know is March for Our Lives. Born out of a tragic school shooting, March for Our Lives is a courageous youth-led movement dedicated to promoting civic engagement, education, and direct action by youth to eliminate the epidemic of gun violence, which feels more and more relevant as time goes on. And unfortunately, I think it's just going to feel more relevant as we move into the future. So checking that website out, marchforourlives.com, is a great idea. And then the last organization of the four that I listed is sunrisemovement.org. Sunrise Movement, they are a climate justice group, but not just a climate justice group. They have 11 principles listed on their website, and I'm going to read to you some of them. It's not all of them, but I wanted to share them because I think it gives you a broader idea of what they're about. We are a movement to stop climate change and create millions of good-paying jobs in the process. We grow our power through talking to our communities. We are people from all paths of life. We are nonviolent in word and deed. We tell our stories and we honor each other's stories. We ask for help and we give what we can. We embrace experimentation and we learn together. And we fight for the liberation of all people. Again, that's not all of their principles, but in checking out their website and what little I do know about them. They are this community building thing that's not just focused on saving the polar bears, but focusing on making a world in which a higher quality of life is accessible to people living today and people in the future of all walks of life. The fact that Talia Keys has those four resources listed on their website really brought some warmth to my heart. It's great to see a musician that has power, wield it for good. So again, 
check out Talia Keys. Before I jump into today's topic, I do have two other things I want to share or ask for. The first of which is I want to put out a call for any special guests. If you are a listener and you have an idea of who would be a cool guest for me to have onto the show, please find me on Instagram, which is at Podcast, and uh, throw a suggestion my way. I would be happy to hear it and excited to meet more folks who are interested in queer intersectional ecofeminism. The next thing I want to share with you <laughs> is just a funny thing that I thought was interesting. Uh, I get a lot of emails. If you have a podcast or you started a podcast and you posted it on LinkedIn or something, you'll you'll find out that all sorts of people email you asking if, you know, if you can pay them to help you with your podcast for one reason or another, or depending on what platforms you're distributing your podcast through, those platforms will send you emails. And I got this one that says, quote, I have some cool information that might interest you. Your podcast, Long Hair Do Care, has good performance in Apple Podcast rankings. It is position 74 in the category of sexuality, specifically in South Africa. So, shout out to whoever is listening to my podcast in South Africa and the reason why I got that lovely email. So, just a fun fact for me to share. And again, I'm going to urge whoever my German listeners are, reach out to me on Instagram. I'm so interested to know uh, who you are. I think there's two of you because every single one of my episodes has two downloads in Germany. So, again, reach out on Instagram at Long Hair Do Care Podcast. Okay, jumping into the topic for today. Again, it is queering birding and birding queer. Really quick, I want to explain to you what queer ecology is. And specifically, I'm going to explain it to you by reading from a blog that is titled Queer Ecology Explained, written by Ingrid Bath, found on climatecrisis.co.uk. So here we go. I'm going to do a little bit of reading. It's very interesting, and I think I'm good at reading out loud, so enjoy. LGBTQIA plus oppression has manifested itself in all areas of thought, and ecology, environmentalism, and the climate movement are no exception. Queer ecology is a scientific theory that aims to bring together queer theory and ecology to shift paradigms away from binary, rigid, and heteronormative ways of understanding nature towards independency and fluidity. These intersectional and interdisciplinary practices break down compulsory heterosexuality as it manifests in our perception of nature and academia, and, in the process, bringing cultural nuances to the forefront. The assumed heterosexuality and therefore the oppression of non-heterosexual identities in biology has been the baseline for scientific studies for centuries, for, for so long. The inherent queerness of nature has for a long time been ignored, suppressed, and dismissed to reflect society's underlying bias against heterosexual and non-cisgender identities. So maybe... Listeners of my podcast have thought about this before, but if you live in a world that says only men can marry women and women can marry men, and those are the only two genders that exist, and then you bring that to science, that's a cultural framework, and that dictates how science is being performed. So queer ecology is kind of reversing that and or queering the science. Queering ecology, aka queer ecology. I'm going to continue reading now. However... In nature, both gender and sex binaries are fluid among a large array of fauna and flora. Later, I will give you more examples of this, specifically with birds, because talking about birding. The simplification of nature has created dualities that reflect our current societal norms and worldviews, which is not good if we're doing science and we're trying to do rigorous science, which I hope most scientists are. We see this in the way we refer to heterosexuality as natural and deviations from this, like homosexuality, as unnatural. But there is nothing unnatural about queerness. Nature is a lot more complex, and I would say queer, than we give it credit for. So all that is to say, 
there have been scientists, I'm gonna say most of them in the past have been white men who declare that homosexuality is unnatural, and that's why for the human race and religion and all that nonsense, people have been so opposed to, let's say, gay marriage or anything queer. Um, and that is, again, reflected in how science was conducted. I will continue reading now. Queer ecology aims to bring light to these issues, which can help scientists better understand and better inform conservation practices and make the climate movement more accurately reflect the natural world, which is super fucking awesome. Queerness is found in countless animals and plants. A common example is homosexual and homoerotic relationships between male penguins. This isn't actually an example that I've heard of before, but I 100% believe it. Although homosexuality in particular has been studied in countless animal species, we are still reluctant to accept queerness as natural. Then the blog continues to go on. The whole read is said to be a five-minute read, so if this is something that is titillating to you, I highly recommend going and reading the full blog. It also might be an article, but I'm pretty sure it's a blog. Again, it's found on climatecrisis.co.uk, and it was written by Ingrid Bath. I might be saying that name wrong. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing the last name wrong. And the title of it is Queer Ecology Explained. Of course, I will have a link to this in the show notes. So now that you have a decent idea of what queer ecology is, I want you to know that the research that I've been doing in the last year has been framed through the lens of queer ecology. Why, you ask? Well, because I'm interested in ecology and I'm queer and I found out that that was a thing and I got so excited. I got so excited. As I had mentioned, I've just completed my first year to earn my master's degree at Utah State University. The department that I'm in is called Environment and Society and it is part of the S.J. Quinney College of Natural Resources, again, at Utah State University. I do need to thank my advisor, who will not be my advisor moving forward because she's taking a kick-ass job, and her name is Dr. Maria Shaglavitova. I am basically going to give you the presentation that I gave to my department. However, you don't get to see my super awesome slides so I'm going to give you that presentation and probably add a few more fun facts along the way. So, my research is diversity, equity, and inclusion discourses in the world of birding and the queer birding experience at Great Salt Lake. The word discourse here means the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations or language that's being used or implemented in the world of birding. The goal of my research is to develop a diversity, equity, inclusion handbook template for the birding community. So basically, DEI is diversity, equity, inclusion, and I'll go into that a little bit later on, but I want to create a handbook template. This template will have, from my research, a complete section on LGBTQ plus diversity, equity, and inclusion discourse or a conversation. And I want to put that together in collaboration with the LGBTQ plus community. I want this to be more of a living document, though I need to admit that the idea isn't fully fleshed out, but ideally it would be a living document in the sense that people could contribute to it so that it can build on itself. I don't think there's value in having a diversity, equity, inclusion handbook that doesn't change with time because language changes over time. Now, we don't use the word transsexual, but there was a time and place where that was the appropriate word to describe somebody. But now, we just don't do that. So keeping this as a living document, to me, seems really important. And I don't think it'll be an open source sort of thing like Wikipedia, because then all sorts of people could come in and say nonsense, but maybe a way to submit a recommendation for a change or an update. And this would be online. And then the reason why this handbook would be a template is because I think there are different sections that could be written by different groups of people. The three groups that I'm thinking of specifically are the LGBTQ plus community, BIPOC community, and, and the third section being relating to folks with different abilities. All three of those communities, I argue, can relate to birds. 
the queer community has so much to connect you with birds because birds are all sorts of queer. For the BIPOC community, birds come in all different colors and shapes and sizes and seeing that diversity, that biodiversity and valuing that has value in society. And then lastly, folks with different abilities, birds themselves have all sorts of different abilities depending again on their shape and size and their bill and how tall they are or how little they are. There's such a wide diversity in birds and birds can do great things with disabilities. So I think having at least those sections filled out, not all by me, only the queer section I would want to fill out in collaboration with the queer community. That's my research goal is to create this diversity, equity, inclusion handbook template for the birding community. And my hope is that having this handbook would allow the birding community to increase the diversity of people who participate in birding and get more folks outside. One, because that improves their quality of life. And two, because if you get people outside, then they're going to care more about outside. They're going to care more about the birds care more about our environment. And hopefully as time goes on, that means we have more policies in place and that snowballs. Basically, I want to get all sorts of people outside to be happier and to care about the world we live in. My research questions for this project are three. The first one being, how is diversity, equity, and inclusion discourse being promoted by birding and bird conservation organizations? Examples of birding and bird conservation organizations are National Audubon Society or Cornell Lab of Ornithology, or if you're local to northern Utah, the Tracy Aviary. Organizations like that. So this question is asking, what diversity, equity, inclusion efforts are these organizations implementing or not implementing? Some organizations aren't doing anything. My next question is, how is birding experienced by those who identify as queer? And my last question is, what are the overlaps and disconnects between the DEI discourse promoted by the different organizations I'd mentioned before and the queer birding experience itself? So if you're a queer birder and you go out, presumably with folks who aren't queer, how do you experience that? And is there any connection between what you feel and the efforts, the diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts being put in place by these larger organizations? Do those efforts translate to your experience? And the answer might be no. But right now, the focus of my research is looking at those diversity, equity, and inclusion discourses. And from now on, instead of saying discourse, birding and bird conservation organizations are using, I'm going to say diversity, equity, and inclusion documents, because that's what I looked at. I looked at different published documents, so to speak. So I'm going to focus on that. Before I jump into that, I'm going to define quickly what diversity, equity, and inclusion is. So diversity, that's the first one. Diversity is the makeup of the visible and invisible social and physical characteristics of a person or a group of people and how that makes them different. The visible and the invisible are pretty important here. There are not a lot of visible things other than skin color, but even though you can see skin color, you don't know what somebody's race is and you don't know what somebody's ethnicity is and you absolutely should not assume it based on looks. You also might want to assume what somebody's gender is based on how they look. They might present male, they might present female, but that might not be their actual gender. Maybe you assume somebody's queer because their hair is shaved and then the part that's not shaved is bright purple, blue and pink, and you're like, oh, maybe they're trying to signal that they're bisexual. But you know what? It's not an assumption you can make. So I argue that most of the things that make us different are not visible. And the things that aren't visible include things like being a parent, being religious, being a student, being queer, being stressed, having dyslexia, having ADHD, having people that you need to take care of. Those are all invisible things. And both the visible and invisible things determine how people treat us and how we experience the world. They're very important. All these things that we do and do not see make up diversity. Equity is the next thing I'll define. 
It is acknowledging individuals are diverse and providing access and opportunities to individuals in a way that meets their unique needs to succeed. Not everybody starts off with the same amount of resources. Hopefully that's common knowledge. Something to note about equity is that it's often confused with equality. An example is if you had a low-income person, a middle-income person, and a high-income person, and you gave them all toaster ovens. That would be equality, but not equity. Because maybe the person with the low income needs something else more. Maybe they need food before they need a toaster oven. Maybe they need a kitchen and proper housing before they have a toaster oven. And then the person who has a super high income, they probably already have a toaster oven. So it doesn't mean anything to them. Middle class person, a lot of the people I know, if they got a toaster oven, they'd be uh, pretty stoked. I'd be pretty stoked if I got a toaster oven. I don't have one, and I'd love that. But that's not equity that's equality, which is different. Equity, on the other hand, would be providing what that low-income person needs, whether that is food or proper housing. The middle-income person, like me, I guess, you could definitely give me a toaster oven if you wanted to. Granted, I don't really need it. I do need other things more, but for the sake of going with this weird analogy I've chosen about a toaster oven, let's go with toaster oven. You could give the middle-income person, like me, a toaster oven. I would like that. And then the person who has a super high income, I don't know, maybe let's tax them a little bit more. Yeah, that's my example for equity for you. Inclusion, the last word I will define for you, is to ensure that all individuals can access information and resources, have the ability to influence decision-making, and feel like part of the team. I think everyone is pretty familiar with the feeling of being excluded. If you're femme presenting, that might have happened to you in work settings, in school settings, a number of social settings where there's a conversation happening and nobody asks you your opinion, but you have an opinion and you want to share it, but no one's really letting you. That's exclusion and inclusion is preventing that from happening. The funny thing about inclusion, especially in thinking about my research, which is specifically about queer birders, is that in some situations, exclusion is really important. One example of exclusion being important is at Utah State University, there's a climbing wall and they have a women's night, which I think it should be called no man's night because... It should just be no men and everyone else who identifies as any other gender, but no man's night. They essentially, they have no man's climbing night because if you're a femme presenting person or a queer person or a woman and you go climbing any other night, it, the gym is dominated by men and you might not feel comfortable being there, being watched, being judged. And when you're with a group of people who aren't men, it's amazing how supportive they can be. And so that no man's climbing night is exclusive, you know? It's exclusive for people who don't identify as men. And that has its time and place. I think it can be incredibly valuable and incredibly powerful. And one example of that in the birding world is Tracy Aviary. They have an event once a month that's called Let's Go Birding Together. The acronym being LGBT, which took me a long time to figure out. <laughs> I was like, why is it called that? But LGBT, Let's Go Birding Together. And it's a birding field trip for queer folks, which I really love. And that is exclusive. And because it's exclusive, it feels more inclusive for people who often feel excluded. So as I keep repeating to you, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, diversity, equity, inclusion, discourse, diversity, equity, inclusion, documents, how I just define those three words is what you can keep in mind. And that's what we're going for. And by we, I definitely mean me. I mean me, myself, and I, and my research. We're trying to get people at the table to be part of decision-making, people given equal opportunities to get outside to see birds, despite the social norms and powers that be, the patriarchy that tells them that they aren't welcome in these spaces because of what they look like and because of who they are. The visible and invisible characteristics that they have that make them who they are. We want them all at the table. So that's diversity, equity, inclusion. That was very windy, but hopefully you enjoyed that. Now, uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about what birding is. You might not know what birding is. For me and for my research, the way that I'm going to 
define it and look at it is when groups of people go outside together to identify birds by sight and sound. So basically going outside with some friends and being like, oh, look, that's a blue jay. Or, ooh, I hear a black-capped chickadee, which in case you don't know what a black-capped chickadee sounds like, they're my favorite bird. They go, and then when they're really scared, they go, chickadee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee. And depending on how uh, scared they are, they add more Ds at the end, which I find fascinating. So if there's a really big predator, they're like, chickadee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee. You're welcome for the bird sounds. So people who go outside and identify birds together, a lot of times people will write down what they see. In fact, all the organizations that you can go volunteering with to go birding, they do record the data, and that goes into this big data pool that can be used by ornithologists or avian ecologists or wildlife ecologists. The main app that is used is called eBird, and you see a bird, you get on the app, it identifies where you are, what time of year it is, which is important when you're recording birds, because birds migrate depending on the time of year, so location and time is important. And then you can say, you know, what bird you saw, if you think it's male or female, the quantity of that bird that you've seen. Pretty sure you can take pictures and post it on eBird. It's a really cool data resource for scientists. Not all birders do that. I don't do that. I need to start doing it, but honestly, apps and uh, technology, they're a little hard for me, but I'm moving through it. I'm growing as a person, and I think it's useful. But that's essentially what birding is, is going out and identifying birds, and some people are absolutely wild about it. Honestly, I'm not the biggest birder, but I love watching bird watchers. They're so passionate about birds, about the environment, about getting outside, about nature. They're just the people that I want to be around, and that's why I started volunteering for Tracy Aviary and Great Salt Lake Audubon, because they're birding groups, and they go out and bird, and I just, I love those people. So that's what birding is. However, birding is not very diverse. If you know a birder, there's a pretty good chance that they're a little bit older, they're fairly affluent, or they have enough money to feel comfortable, and they very well might be white and maybe heteronormative. And that's a big issue, and something that, of course, I'm trying to address with my research. Now, there has been a lot of research on ethno-racial diversity in birding, and that came about for two reasons. The first reason is in 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic broke out and a lot of people did turn to birding because one, you do it outside. So it's a little safer if you're doing it in groups. Two, it's super easy to social distance if you do do it in groups. Three, you can do it basically anywhere. You can do it from inside your kitchen. All you do is you look out and you see a bird. That's birding. You can also do it from your backyard. And a lot of folks who had backyards and had nowhere else to go wanted to explore nature, and so how did they do it? They did it by looking at the birds who were visiting their yards. So you had this huge spike in people who participated in birding, and this was evident through the app eBird. I don't have the actual number right now, but the, the number of users of that app spiked. And I should tell you that that app is run through the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. So they do the app, and they saw a spike in users in 2020, and with an increase of birders, you'd expect also an increase in diversity, which was partially true. Another thing that happened in 2020, I'm sure you remember, is there was a peak in the Black Lives Matter movement, followed by the death of George Floyd. People were calling for diversity in many different realms of life, and birding was included in that, especially after an incident that happened in Central Park, New York, with a black birder named Christian Cooper. Christian Cooper was birding in Central Park, and he asked a woman, Amy Cooper, no relation, a white woman, if she would put her dog on a leash because they were in an area where dogs were required to be on leash. Um, you could say that Amy Cooper was a Karen in this situation. She called the police. She said that there was a black man there attacking her and her dog. Christian Cooper had the wherewithal to film the whole thing, so you can look this up. But, you know, he was out birding, enjoying nature, and he had the cops called on him. That caused an uproar. This was May 2020. In response to that incident, Black Birders Week was founded, and it was founded by wildlife biologist Danielle Bellany, along with the group 
Black AF in STEM, which is a super cool group. You should definitely follow them on Instagram. And it is a week-long series of online events to highlight black nature enthusiasts and to increase the visibility of black birders who face unique challenges and dangers when engaging in the outdoors such as getting the cops called on them. This year, 2020 Blackbirders Week will be happening through Sunday, May 29th through Saturday, June 4th. And depending on when I release this episode, it may or may not have already happened, but check it out. Not only did Black Birders Week become established in response to this event, but there have generally been more discussion in academia and how to get racial ethnodiversity in the outdoors and in the birding community itself. Of course, there is still not enough diversity in both outdoor recreation and and science, whether that's wildlife biology, biology general, or ornithology and avian ecology, which is specific to birds. But it is nice to see that more of these diverse events are taking hold and being put on by the black community itself. However, though there is more discussion and more events happening around ethno-racial diversity and birding, there is a lack of discussion and research going on with the LGBT community in birding. This gap in conversation and research on queer birding or LGBTQ birding led me to the research project that I am sharing with you now, which is, of course, looking at queer birders and queering birding, which I have to admit I was pretty excited to dive into. Now that we've talked a little bit about the backstory of what birding is and diversity in birding, I'm going to go into another short round of definitions mostly focusing on the word queer and my argument that birds, birding, and Great Salt Lake are queer. Uh, First of all, uh, queer as a noun originally meant odd or strange. Over time, that morphed to mean gender or sexuality deviating from the norm. So anybody who didn't fall into the straight binary. It was used as a slur. Then, in the 80s, 90s, the LGBTQ plus community reclaimed the word queer as an identity, essentially to mean not straight. And this happened during the AIDS crisis, where the queer community was experiencing a lot of trauma, and so reclaiming that word was vital. Queer as an experience. Historically oppressed, criminalized, brutalized, exploited, eroticized, and if something's eroticized, you know it's going to be deemed as sinful. To a degree, all of that is still true today. However, there is joy and there's liberation in being queer and saying you're queer and having reclaimed the word queer. Part of that is because there are now protections or laws gay marriage is legalized. There are laws against discrimination. And then queer as a verb, queering ecology, simply means to subvert or deconstruct the dominant culture. Again, I talked about that at the top of the hour. If we treat nature, specifically wildlife, as male animal and female animal interact, and that's it. You're, you're missing the larger picture. So again, to subvert or deconstruct the dominant culture, which I'm going to do right now by arguing that birds, birding, and Great Salt Lake are all queer. Birds are queer because there are countless examples, including the penguin example that I brought up earlier, of gender or sexuality deviating from the norm. Another example is griffin vultures. There were two of them at a zoo. They were males, and they mate for life, and they coupled up. They decided to be mates for life. And every year, they'd build a little nest, and they'd mate, but they never produced a chick because anatomy wouldn't allow them to. But it turned into a success story when they found an egg that needed to be incubated, but for whatever reason... The layer of the egg was not able to incubate it, so they brought it to this gay vulture couple. They incubated the egg, and it hatched, and now they have a baby. So it's this lovely story, and there are just countless examples of birds being queer. Also, birds are very flamboyant and have all sorts of different colors, and uh, I would say maybe they are the color of the rainbow. Birding is queer because it's kind of weird. It's on the outskirts of normal behavior, I would say. If you don't know what birding is and you see somebody walking around with binoculars, you can be pretty weirded out. You might have an idea of what they're doing, but if you don't know fully what they're doing and you don't understand what they're doing, you might think it's weird, which a lot of people do 
with the queer community. They see it, they don't understand it, they think it's weird, they don't like it. So birding is often seen as strange or odd behavior and is considered to be something that deviates from the norm. It is queer. Birding birds in nature as an experience, like the queer community, has been historically suppressed, criminalized, brutalized, and exploited. And today, to a degree, all of that is true, and there's a lot of fear around nature, but there's also a lot of joy and liberation and, again, protections. There are laws in place, such as the Clean Air Act or the Endangered Species Act, to protect nature. So it parallels the queer experience quite a bit. So that's my argument for why birds, birding, and nature in general are queer. And to go a little bit further, I want to talk about Great Salt Lake because Great Salt Lake is my study area. If you haven't been to Great Salt Lake, you should definitely check it out. It is what Salt Lake City is named after. It indeed is very salty. It is a terminal lake, meaning that water only flows into it. It does not flow out of it. The only way water leaves the lake is by evaporation. So anything that flows in that can't evaporate stays there, which is partially why it's so salty. It is one of the saltiest lakes. The northern arm of the lake is about 30% saline, which is very high. Compare that to the salinity of the oceans, which is 3.5% saline on average. And then the southern portion or the southern arm of the lake fluctuates between 6 and 27% salinity. That is definitely a lake that deviates from the norm and is a bit strange compared to other lakes that we see, especially when you're thinking about lakes that are surrounded by trees and have rope swings that go into them. This is definitely not one of those lakes, but it is unique and beautiful in its own way just like queers in the queer community. Another thing that makes it a little different than most lakes is that it has a causeway running through it, and that's why there is a north arm and a south arm, and that's why there's different salinity levels in each one of them. In, in fact, the differences in the salinity levels on either side of the causeway cause a difference in color. So on one side of the causeway, I believe it's the north side, the water looks more pink. And then on the south side, it looks more blue, kind of like a baby blue. And then the causeway itself looks white. And in certain photographs, those look like the trans flag colors. And though that's not an academic argument, I still think that that is a reason why Great Salt Lake is more queer than other lakes. It also, depending on the time of year you're there, has all these bugs, all these tiny little biting bugs and mosquitoes, and it makes it a little hostile to a greater extent than most lakes. So it also makes it a little odd or strange. Great Salt Lake, historically, and as an experience, has been oppressed, it has been brutalized, it has been exploited, and that's true. Today, there's still water being deviated away from the lake for use in cities or for agriculture to grow crops. So the lake level is lowering, and that's a huge threat right now. We don't want this lake to dry up, and so there's a lot of fear about that, a fear about this exploitation. However, there is a lot of joy for those who go out to the lake. And this year, 2020, so many laws, so many bills during the legislative session were passed to protect the lake. So we, we do see this newfound level of protection given to the lake. Another thing, another way in which I think it's queer is for those living in Salt Lake, in Salt Lake City or Northern Utah generally, um, that lake contributes a lot to our air quality, to the snowpack that we have, a lot to the weather, and we don't really see it. It's just kind of on the peripheral. It contributes to society a lot, but it's not visible. The same could be said of queerness. There are a lot of queer people, there's a lot of queer experiences all around us, and that is shaping the future. That's shaping today. That's shaping all of our experiences and laws. But if you don't know somebody who's queer, if you aren't somebody who's queer and it's not part of your life, it's not really visible to you. So all three things, birding, Great Salt Lake, and queerness, the queer community, could all use a little bit more visibility. So... I need to tell you that Great Salt Lake is not my study area just because I can argue that it's queer. It's also my study area because it is a globally important bird and biodiversity area. That designation was given by the Western Hemisphere Shorebird Reserve Network, and it has this globally important bird area designation because 7 to 10 million individual birds visit this lake annually. Some of those birds are residential birds, meaning they live here and they stay in Utah but 
a lot of them are migratory birds, and they're migrating from either end of the globe in the Western Hemisphere. Therefore, it is a hemispherically important area. If these birds couldn't stop at Great Salt Lake to feed, to breed, to nest, to rest generally, they would have to find somewhere else to stop, and they might not find another place to stop, so their population might start to collapse. And if their population starts to collapse, that affects all the other places that they visit when they're migrating. So this lake is a keystone for the broader Western Hemisphere ecology, the broader ecological web that is the western half of this globe. Like, this is such an important and vital lake. It's also very fragile, and again, it is being threatened by many different things, but that is why it's my study area, is because it is a hot spot for birds, and therefore it is a hot spot for birders. So, if I want to collect data on birders, this is a great place to be, not to mention it's right next to Salt Lake City, which has a pretty great queer community. Somebody recently told me that of all the places they've traveled to, they've never seen so many pride flags, and that made me really proud to be from Salt Lake City. So, now that I've given you background on my research, I've told you what diversity, equity, inclusion means, I've told you what queer means, uh, I've argued that birds, birding, nature generally in Great Salt Lake is queer, and that Great Salt Lake is a bird hotspot and therefore a birding hotspot, and of course I've told you what birding is, let's go back to those research questions that I talked about at the top. Question number one is, how is diversity, equity, and inclusion being promoted by birding and bird conservation organizations? To answer this question, I looked at 17 different birding and bird conservation organizations. And the criteria I used to decide on whether or not to include an organization was one, if they were a nationally prominent organization, or two, if they were an organization local to Utah. The nationally prominent organizations include American Birding Association, American Bird Conservancy, BirdAbility, BirdLife International, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Feminist Bird Club, National Audubon Society, Ohio Ornithology Society, and though it sounds like that's specific to Ohio, it's actually pretty nationally prominent, and then the Jay Vassey Consulting. And then the organizations local to Utah include Friends of Great Salt Lake, Bridgerland Audubon Society, Great Salt Lake Audubon, Hawk Watch International, Red Cliffs Audubon, the Tracy Avery Lake Audubon, which is a brand new organization, and Wasatch Audubon Society. And five of those eight organizations that I just listed off are National Audubon Society chapters that are local to Utah. So in total, I have nine organizations that are nationally prominent and eight that are local to Utah, which is 17 in total. Of the 17, only seven of them have diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. So how did I find that out? Well, the first thing I did was I reached out to each one of these organizations asking if they had diversity, equity, inclusion efforts that were either internal documents that they were willing to share or external documents that I could find online. Only one organization had internal documents that they were willing to share, and that was National Audubon Society. The rest of them, the other six, as well as National Audubon Society, said no, they don't have any internal documents that they have or are willing to share, but they do have some posted on their website. So the second thing I did was I went and I scoped out each of the organization's websites. The seven organizations that did have diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts include American Birding Association, American Bird Conservancy, BirdAbility, not surprising, they're an organization that focuses on getting people who have disabilities out to go birding, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Feminist Bird Club, again, not a surprise, feminist is in the name, National Audubon Society, and then Tracy Aviary. And Tracy Aviary was the only local organization that had diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. And might I say, Tracy Aviary went above and beyond with their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, and I love them very much. Tracy Aviary does events once a month called Let's Go Birding Together, aka LGBTQ. They're super awesome. If you're queer, you should go and you should see what birding's all about because it's pretty cool. It was sad to see that a majority of the organizations 
that I reached out to did not have DEI efforts in place. At this point in the process, I have eight PDFs to analyze. One of the PDFs is that National Audubon Society internal document, and that is a 45-page document titled Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion How-To Guide. And then the seven other documents are PDFs that I made out of the websites that had the DEI efforts posted on the different organization websites. The seven PDF documents that I pulled from the websites usually are between one and four paragraphs. So they're not very long. They're one page PDF documents. So with these eight different PDFs, I used a program called InVivo to do a document analysis. Again, the question that I'm asking is, what do bird organizations say about diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts? Some of the specific questions that I wanna dive into using the document analysis is number one, what is the work that's being done with these efforts? And all of the organizations right off the bat will talk about this work is being done for the birds. However, we intend to work more explicitly towards advancing justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Or, for example, work towards creating an even greater sense of belonging. Are organizations trying to hire a more diverse staff? Are they trying to partner with diverse groups and get diverse groups of people out? Is it using pronouns when they introduce themselves to make the queer community feel more inclusive? Is it doing a land acknowledgement to acknowledge indigenous communities? What is the quote-unquote work being done? And who exactly is doing the work? Is this going to be the volunteers? Is this going to be the staff members? Is it going to be someone else? So what is the work and who is specifically doing that work? Another question is, does the relationships between birds and people affect DEI? These birding organizations bring up a lot that they care about the biodiversity of our world, including the biodiversity of birds, as well as the diversity of people. Sometimes it's just a parallel between biodiversity and diversity, and sometimes it's being used as a metaphor. Does that emphasis on the parallel increase their want for diversity, or is that just something thrown out there because it's a fun play on words? Another question is, who or what exactly is being focused on? Is it partnerships that are being focused on? Is it a specific group of people? I found during the document analysis, one of the organizations really just focused on the BIPOC community. And then certain programs, including Tracy Avery's Let's Go Birding Together, the LGBT birding field trips that they go on, of course, are targeted for the queer community. And Birdability is an organization that focuses on folks with disabilities and getting them out on birding. But in doing the document analysis on their efforts, I found that there's an emphasis also on people of color, people of minority genders, so on and so forth. Another question is, where's the power? And this is more of an abstract question, but it's thinking, you know, these organizations themselves, they have power. And are they trying to transfer that power? Are they trying to empower other people? A big looming question here is, are these diversity, equity, inclusion efforts being done to actually make a difference on the ground? Or, or are they doing it to diversity wash? Which is to say they're doing it just so that they sound like they're doing something good. If you've heard of greenwashing, it's the same thing, diversity washing. Just like putting a label on something, being like, this is sustainable, but really there's no backing to it. Or this is equitable and there's no backing. Like you say that, but there's no official certification. There's no official thing that you did to make the thing that you have equitable or sustainable. You know, you're just slapping on a label and then people are like, ooh, that's great. I feel better about it. And so they roll with it. The last question is, are there overlapping themes from different organizations' DEI efforts? And after doing the document analysis one time through, I found that, yes, a lot of organizations do indeed emphasize the parallels between biodiversity and diversity in people, and they want to create safe spaces for people of all backgrounds. Other questions I would like to ask outside of the document analysis that I won't be able to as part of this research project is, who wrote the language for these different diversity, equity, inclusion efforts? Why did they write them? In order to answer these questions, I would 
need to interview the different organizations. Some of them said that they would be interested in that, but because of time restraints and several other factors, it won't be part of this specific project. I think now is a good time to talk specifically about National Audubon Society, because as I said, not only do they have stuff published on their website, but they also have that internal document, that 45-page how-to guide, of which I did read the whole thing. It's very long. It's also somewhat repetitive, and there were definitely full-blown sentences, if not paragraphs, that were just copy and pasted to different sections, which... I think the document is useful, but it's so much, and I've shared it with the local Audubon chapters here, and I had to be like, okay, read these pages. These are the important pages, because it is super long, it's super extensive, and this might not be fully true, but I heard that it was published in response to a lot of outcry that happened in 2020, with the peak of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, in part because the name Audubon in National Audubon Society comes from John James Audubon. And he was a prominent birder. He painted pictures of birds and put it into this enormous, I think it's one of the biggest books in the world. The book is called Birds of America. It has 435 hand-colored, full-size prints made from engraved plates. And the book measures around 39 by 26 inches. This is a crazy book. You should look it up. But he was a slave owner, so in the name of National Audubon Society, we're celebrating a slave owner, which is not great. And I think the conversation around renaming National Audubon Society is coming, but I haven't seen it change a lot, and so much is tied to the name. If anybody wants to have a conversation about that, I'd be so open to discussing that. But they published this, I'm pretty sure, in response to outcry against National Audubon Society for not being more inclusive, and so they kind of overdid it with this 45-page document. If I had more time to do more research into this, as I mentioned before I started talking about National Audubon, something that I would like to do is ask, why are you doing this? In addition to what is it that you're doing and what is it that you wrote and what is the language that you're using when describing the diversity, equity, inclusion efforts that you want to implement. And are they, do they have an impact on the ground? Also, what is the process that you used in order to write these? Did you look at a collection of other organizations' diversity, equity, inclusion documents and put them all together? Or did you get feedback from the actual people that you want to empower? who wrote these documents. If you just got a group of people together and you kind of copy-paste from other groups and you made your diversity, equity, inclusion statement that way, that's... N <sighs> in some cases, that's a great first step, but in a lot of cases, it's diversity washing. So I'd be really interested in asking more of those questions moving forward. But that's not what my research is on, maybe in the future. Before I deviate from talking about these organizations, I will say that of the 10 organizations that I reached out to that did not have diversity, equity, inclusion documents, eight of them said that they would really love to see what I create so that they can implement diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, which I think is wonderful. The preliminary findings that I have are that this work needs to be done through partnership it absolutely needs to be ongoing. It will require really hard and uncomfortable conversations. In addition to that, however, it must involve joy and celebration. Celebration of our differences, joy of coming together and strengthening the birding and community. And the end goal for all of this needs to be that we are creating safe spaces at every level of birding. Whether you're working for a birding organization or whether you're a brand new birder who just wants to see what it's all about. Super quick, I'm going to go over the last two questions that I had that, again, I mentioned at the top, and then I think I'll be done. So question number two is, how is birding experienced by those who identify as queer? And um, I'm going to send out a survey, actually, to the birding community, and I'll get answers from both queer folks and non-queer folks, but it'll ask questions about... To what degree do you feel a sense of belonging, comfort, and safety while birding and being queer? And then also there'll be questions asking, does this diversity, equity, inclusion effort 
published by name any of the organizations that I just mentioned, how do you think these affect your experience? And then I'm going to be asking questions about the diversity, equity, inclusion efforts that these different organizations are putting in place, saying, hey, what do you think about this effort, whether that's using pronouns or something else? Question number two, part of my research is, what are the overlaps and disconnects between the DEI efforts and the queer birding experience? That will be answered through that survey, but more importantly, it'll be used to develop the DEI handbook template. So if there's something that's majorly missing from the published DEI efforts that survey participants point out, I can use that. Because again, I don't want to create this alone. I want to create this in collaboration. So that's my presentation. And um, again, I do want to thank Dr. Maria Shaglavitova, and I have to thank the Department of Environment and Society that's part of the Queenie College of Natural Resources. And preemptively, I need to thank Great Salt Lake Audubon, the Tracy Aviary, Hawkwatch, Sageland Collaborative, and the Utah State University Inclusion Center for helping me distribute my survey. So that's it. That was a long one. That was a lot of me talking, but hopefully you liked it. And hopefully you learned a little bit about birding. Maybe you learned a little bit about queerness or queer ecology. And again, if you have suggestions for guests I can interview or topics you want me to cover, please reach out. I would love that. I would love interaction with any of my listeners. And to end, as my dad always says, use your head and be clever. Bye, everyone.